just like that, we're straight into it. Uh, well, kia ora tato te whanau. Um, my name is Chloe Swarbrick. Um, I am your first openly queer uh, Auckland Central MP. Um, <laughs> um, and I have the great privilege and honour uh, today to be facilitating um, a kōrero between um, two incredible people that I've just spent some time asking them what they want to be asked. <laughs> and I will allow them to introduce themselves because I do not think that I could do that justice, but we of course here have um, Nahuya uh, and Fiona. Uh, and I understand, Nahuya, you wanted to kick us off uh, with some reflections on something that happened, was it in Crackham magazine? Um, I'm really honoured to be here today and I always enjoy the opportunity to remember and more importantly to remind all of us about those that can't speak for themselves, about those whose memories, whose lives, whose neighbourhoods have gone. Behind me is something I wrote when I was doing my master's here at Auckland University in 1971. It was an article for Crackham entitled Lesbianism, the Elegance of Unfettered Love. Obviously, I was living in another world at the time. <laughs> and um, at that point, I'd like to congratulate the Charlotte Museum, and the brilliant display. Uh, that is really heartening. Because so often in LGBTQIA conversations, the L word gets dropped off. And so having that here today reminds me of what it was like way back then. And when I wrote this piece behind me, it was... Um, a full centre spread in Crackham with some rather tasteful images. <laughs> Don't rush off to the archives, but um, various um, sapphic-inspired um, scenes of girls who will be unnamed. And um, my own writing about how it felt at that time to be like that, because the words that we used included camp or like that. We were too scared to say queer because that had such massive implications. And of course, gay was very American. It was a foreign word. I'm in my mid-70s now, so I'm talking of a time long before all of you, and certainly some of your parents, were not here. But it was a different world. And so I'll just describe a couple of things, because I know I want to hear what Fiona has to say. Um, we were very much part of the university environment, which at that time was like a cauldron of political activity. We had the anti-Vietnam War movement, we had the anti-apartheid movement. We had the beginnings of Ngātamatoa, of the Panthers, of women's liberation particularly. And all of these energies erupted around the same time 
1970, in 1971. One of the reasons, I think, is because economically, financially, it was a much easier time. We didn't have to work. If you were a good student and you passed, then the government paid you to stay at university. If you were an exceptional student, you got accommodation as well. So it was a different world. It was a privileged world. But nevertheless, we pushed it, and we pushed hard. Um, in 71, I applied for an American scholarship to visit the campuses like Berkeley, like Kent State, like Cooney, to visit the campuses of that land and to have a look at gay liberation and at what was then called the American Indian Movement. I was an active and founding member of Ngā Tamatoa. And um, word came back that I'd actually won it. And I was just so blown away because I really wanted to see what other natives were doing and what other camp people were doing. And particularly, I wanted to meet people like me. Well, that happened in August 71. And so we waited for confirmation, and it never came. In the end, of course, spies in different bureaucracies informed us that it wasn't going to happen. And the decision we made after Waitangi protest in 1972 was to confront the US consul who had a really weird chamber in Shortland Street. At that time, my escorts to visit the consul were founding members of Tamatoa. One was Ringo, black leather jacket, massive afro, dark glasses, workman's boots, and 501s. And the other person that came with me was Patrick, also known as Titch Tehemara, who was the brother of Hannah Jackson Tehemara, also a founding member and a spectacular, frilly, what was then known in the Māori community as Sissy Boy. So the three of us went up and were informed by the consulate um, sitting behind his enormous desk with armed military protection on either side, we were informed as he read the Immigration and Nationality Act that as a known sexual deviant, I was not going to receive a visa and everything was off. At which point, of course, I turned into a fury came back to campus, and on that particular day, Tim Shadbolt was having a day off. <laughs> because we had an open mic, and it was usually running between 12 and 2 every lunchtime, and he and his mad bugger friends 
would basically dominate everything. But that day he must have been doing something else. And so I grabbed the microphone and said, is anyone out there crazy enough or mad enough or brave enough to come with me and talk about starting gay liberation? And that was the beginning of it. Eight people turned up. Oh, I said, come to the cafe. And the cafe was this seedy little brown-stained hole underneath what was then considered a very bunkeresque, Stalinist-looking concrete building that was the student union. Poked underneath amongst the lockers was this little brown burrow that was the cafe, and eight turned up, and they included people like Nigel Bomber, David Schofield, Paul Kells, Pat Robb, my partner of the day, Katerina Maria Teresa de Nave, whom I still revere and think of fondly, and um, a few others, and we began, we began planning at that time. And um, not long after that, something was published. This abomination, The Little White Book by the Founder Press, dedicated to Patricia Bartlett. <laughs> Published in early 1972, not long after we started to roll as a movement. Homosexuality, page 44. Instead of excusing his tendencies with fallacious medical theories, the homosexual should be forced to turn away from his sin. When overcome with his vile aberrations, he should count to 100 and take a cold shower. Only when all homosexuals follow the simple practice will the streets be safe for normal people, such as yourself, dear reader. <laughs> About female homosexuals, we have little to say. The recent statements from a young woman at Auckland are vile and filthy. The fact that several of these outspoken young perverts are Māori has nothing to do with it. The crime is spreading and must be eradicated. The police are finding it impossible to cope with the situation. They need a hand. distributed throughout the country to the public schools and in the church school system, the little white book. And so in response to that, when Bartlett um, spoke at the Christian um, school Christian Union Hall, 
I always get the title of it muddled up. But there is this little funny place upstairs in um, Queen Street near the Baptist Tabernacle. And um, we heard that she was going to visit and basically give Auckland a rousing address about such perverts as us. And so we organised um, an invasion, um, made a massive bed sheet that said gay is proud, um, infiltrated the neat little rows of Christian peoples, except, of course, Nigel insisted on wearing love beads and a green silk tank top <laughs> and silver high heels. But he got in, and he was incredibly brave. And um, the rest of us were scattered amongst the crowd. And we were about to storm the stage with our great big banner when suddenly, through the side door, trumpeting and bellowing and roaring, came Tim Shadbolt and all his mates screaming, Vietnam is the true obscenity. We were completely upstaged. But actually we weren't, because most of us, as we all know, will never take that as a final point. And what we did was we scrambled onto the stage, nearly, looked ba nearly knocked Bartlett over. She was hustled out by police. We weren't, thank God, and we got the banner up. Um, that, I think, was the first major action here in Auckland. We didn't have Gay Week until a few weeks later, when suddenly someone struck on Queen's birthday as being the most appropriate time for us to parade up and down the aptly named street. And it was that occasion which, of course, is so well recorded in Crackham and um, other publications. Uh, the other thing I think I'll mention is that the NZUSA decided that what gay liberation needed was a real big push. And so I was funded to go to Massey, Victoria and Canterbury and talk there about being the way I am and how I'm not the only one. I think I'll finish there, but I did want to just... Um, read the words of a mentor and dear friend. Um, unfortunately, oh, I'll find it. The, um, the presence of this person in our lives was really important for many of us. And I'm referring to the illustrious Henare Te Ua, and what he said was this. For those of us here, the fight is not finished. This is here in Ua. It will never finish. Never. We must never drop our guard, and we must never, ever drop our vigilance. If we become blasé, if we become ho-hum, if we take it for granted, if we just accept the situation, then the enemy, who are always there, 
will try to undermine and erode us. It's still not safe in Ashburton or Rotorua or Taupo. It's safe in Auckland and Wellington most of the time. That was just me ad-libbing. However, if we do not continue the fight, we would betray those many who did so, unsung, unnamed, but they were there, and thank God there are one or two in the audience here today who can proudly say, I was there, and I am proud of who I am, and I am proud of the people who were around me at that time. And I think of Patrick Dehemada, and I think of Lee Smith, and I think of Hannah, and so many others. The fight continues. No matter how many rainbow balloons we may inflate, and no matter how many festivals we may enjoy, we have to consciously remain aware that the right wing is still out there and their flags are flying too. Nō reira, e rangatirama, tēnā rā tātou katoa. Thank you. I lost my spirit. Um, that's definitely not the last of your contributions, I just uh, want to say. We are going to unpack a lot of that. Uh, but just reflecting um, on that time um, when Nahui was at the forefront of, um, you know, being engaged in these movements and uh, also um, these actions around Gay Week and otherwise. Fiona, you were a fresher at this university. Um, you were at Elam. Uh, and you were turning up to some of these things. They were a little bit dangerous. You were thinking about moving from sculpting into photography. Can you tell us a bit about that time and how you first got roped into all of this? Uh, roped. <laughs> um, don't mind a rope. Um, yeah, I, I want to touch on the political things because I'd come from Inglewood, right? So <laughs> you might know that Inglewood has very strange statistics. But my parents were both very much what my mother would call free thinker. And there were two instances. I'd, come, I'd planned on coming to Auckland when I was 16, but I couldn't because they said that, you know, I would be going to the den of iniquity which was Elam, I was off. <laughs> and, and my mother thought this was quite a good idea, that we were free thinking, although and my father had um, been confronted by police when milking the cows about my brothers protesting at a Vietnam protest. And my father thought it was totally indignant. How dare they interrupting the milking of cows? And I was helping. <laughs> so I quickly learned the right from wrong. So these were sort of interesting political groundings I had. So I'd come into Auckland and I had to earn money to go to art school. They'd sent, they'd, that was what I had to do. We didn't have much money, so... Um, I had a job, and I, I got a job at the Kadora Coffee Bar. Now, in those days, this is the summer of 1971, oh, and I quickly learnt uh, to 
I, I, I don't know if I was streetwise or not. I think I probably was. I, I could run and I'd experienced um, some pretty nastiness, difficult times at Englewood High School, being quite bright and quite out there and refusing to go to the, uh, the dance with a boy. I took a, a woman, uh, a school friend who helped me, we were librarians together, um, to the Inglewood High School ball. So this was very, uh, they didn't want us, because we were sort of senior students supposedly. I was only 16 only, but anyway. And so I had a sense that I just really wanted to get out of Inglewood and I wanted to find this den of iniquity. So I ended up at the Cadora, where I met people like Tina de Melmont, Gags. I met Natasha Allen. I met lots of people working the street. And I, because the, the person, I'm trying to paint, the picture in Auckland was quite different. The owner was having an affair with somebody, with this young woman who, so I was left to run the Cadora on my own in the evenings, which sometimes would run until like three in the morning. The good thing was I had a, got a taxi back to Ponsonby. I lived in Wood Street for the summer of 71 and 72. So I'd become aware of that lower Auckland area and I'd gone into Elam and there was, the posters for Gay Liberation were printed at Elam. David Brown was doing them and I was going into sculpture and he was a sculpture student and in Crackham there were ads, if you're gay, talk to SCO at the sculpture department, which was David Schofield. And if you were gay, you could write to Maureen in Parnell. So there was this wonderful sense of a small community and within the sculpture department, um, there was a very active presence of performance work, um, which wasn't all, um, a lot of it was very undocumented. David Brown, who was in the photographs with Nahuia, uh, Peter Wells would come because he was a friend. There were a whole Rodney group Frumpston. of people. And, and Rodney Frumpston and Nigel Bomber. And Nigel Bomber had the Socialist Action Unity Party. Mm -hmm. I think that's what the yeah. students group. So they would have meetings as well. And as Elam, young Elam students, we would go to the quad to listen and we would dress and we would help print the posters and then attend the dance parties, which happened in the cafe. Meanwhile, I was a sculpture student trying to do this thing about gender and performance work, and I didn't really have an audience. I'd performed in clubs on K Road with Raywin, so I did a, a duo called Ra Ruby and Pearl, two women performing. Um, it, yeah, so I just moved to photography really because I couldn't find, I, I really wanted to record the community I was in and give them a voice. <laughs> that was really it. It was that political notion that my father had been confronted by police while milking the cows about his sons in the Vietnam War. I mean, whoa, please, you know. And so I had that sense, and I got that sense from attending rallies, which Ngāhuia would be speaking at, or Nigel Bomba and the Socialist Action Unity Party. And Patricia Bartlett was around, so... And I'd started to produce work um, about, about those events, and I just kept documenting it. Um, and I had a, a later in, uh, I think it was 75, 
Patricia Bartlett took me on um, to uh, take a case of indecency, called me the same words actually repeated that Nahuia had got, you know, vile, obscene. Um, and a, a sermon was preached about me as a degenerate, um, a vile. But all, with all of this, there's this huge sense of uh, integrity and just knowing that you have to stand up for mm. that, um, uh, for those challenges. And that's how I've felt, and that's how I work. And I still work that way. I still believe that, for me, it's, uh, it's like the classic European constable painting. This might sound a strange analogy. But in that fuddy, where the servants are preparing the, fair, the meals for the landowner, there's another story, and that needs to be told. So that's the way I've worked for those 50, 50 years now, of the way I've produced my images. And that sense of value and trueness and integrity comes from that those early, um, um, not lectures, but early happenings, as they were, yeah. Um, and dance parties that we did. The dance parties, there weren't many people turned up. People um, were sometimes worried about it. I mean, I never went to the first march. Um, I know people who did, and they prepared themselves to go. They, we were scared for them. We were worried. Um, and they came back, and that was okay, so we could go. But the first people that went to those were incredibly brave. And I know Pat Rob took her dog, Columbo, and Columbo had a sign, this dog is gay. <laughs> and for me, I just realised that things had gender. I thought, wow, that's a gay dog. <laughs> it was the first, it was like an, you know, light bulb moment. And I was 17, you know, it's a gay dog. Yep. So I've had gay, I've always had animals that I give, you know, I acknowledge that. And I think that... We now do that too with land and anything else in Aotearoa. And I think that's incredibly, um, yeah, important and affirming. Mm. Yeah. No. I think, yeah, the other thing is those early clubs were really interesting. And the women who ran things like the KG Club, and it moved. It moved every now and then it would move, A, because there'd be a raid and people would get, it would get closed down. And the other fact about it that I always found fascinating was it was a butch and femme. So you needed to know what you were to go to the toilet. It was quite clear. Um, and you had certain roles of how you existed within a community. Yeah. Now we'll get on to um, that concept of particularly kind of identity and unpacking all of that, particularly over the past 50 years. And I also, Nahuya, um, want to get to uh, particularly some of the accusations levied against you amongst the tensions with women's lib and with gay liberation and otherwise. Uh, but just on that point, Fiona, of the photographs that you were taking, um, those photographs were considered really dangerous. They were considered really dangerous to the extent that I understand Kodak refused to uh, publish or to uh, work through and to uh, develop your obscene photographs uh, and that art dealers for a little while wouldn't touch you. Feels well, like things have changed somewhat now. Well, uh, it, uh, do, do you now feel validated and vindicated that you spent so long doing these things that were so dangerous and documenting this stuff, which now obviously is a treasure trove that all of us look to? 
Um, I, it's not that Kodak wouldn't. We, I knew that I had to do it myself. That was the thing. Like Ngahuia needed to, she wanted to speak, so she spoke. And so I knew I had to photograph and I had to process them myself to keep that safety within our community because that's the way we existed. If someone, you know, it, it, was, a, it's a net, it was a network of, of safety in a way. Um, so that's why I developed all the early work myself and we built colour dark rooms. I built a colour dark room so I could photograph in colour. That was part of that uh, keeping within the closed doors of the community because it was dangerous out there. It was really dangerous. I mean, I was really lucky I never got beaten. I, there was a couple of instances with Raywin walking up Queen Street, you know, guys pulled in cars. and That was the level of what it was like here. And it was the same, it went right through for uh, the, the work I was producing. But I actually thought they were good photographs, see? That was my problem. I, it was not a problem, but, you know, I had this belief that... Yeah, I'm not sure if you answered your question, but uh, yeah, I, I just believed that I needed to hold that history and that it was my, uh, it wasn't a role or responsibility, but it was, a, um, well, it's, it was part of, my, it's my history, and if I don't look after me, who's going to look after our pictures, you know, like, I took them, and they're my friends, and if they're not good enough, for them, they're not good enough for you. So that was that, that belief. And that belief came from a community that existed on that quad in 71 and 72 and those early marches of unity and belief. And I still work, think that way quite often when I'm working because, yeah, it's, it's incredibly important for a community to have that. Kia ora. You, uh, this was not the first, you, you did many actions, um, including dressing up as a witch when Jermaine Greer came to town. Uh, and that included trying to put at the forefront of people's minds these intersections of different identities, as you were alluding to before, uh, not only fighting for women's liberation, but for Māori women's liberation and for gay, lesbian, queer women's liberation. Uh, you were accused at one point in time uh, by raising particularly lesbianism, uh, that you were putting the women's movement back by 50 years, uh, and you also uh, were, yeah, many times confronted about, you know, being far too radical on that bent with regard to Māori women's rights. I mean, how did you seek to reconcile all of these things, and can you speak a little bit to that tension with all of those identities, and particularly those groups that you belong to? That's a really hard question, Just Chloe. A, yeah, um, I think I'm, um, I see myself as an evolving organism, never static. And all of those parts of me make me who I am. I look at my great-grandparents and five are Māori, one is Norwegian Sami, one is German and one is French but I carry the Frenchman's face. Um, and they, they're so diverse. I grew up in a community um, where the presence of foreigners 
ensured our income. I grew up in Rotorua. My family are guides, are dancers, are weavers, are carvers, are storytellers. However, Rotorua, as many of you may well remember, was also the focus and the locus of much of Aotearoa New Zealand's gay identity and evolution. And much of that was Māori. Much of that was Māori. I grew up with sissy boys, with aunties who shared a double beard. And they were together for 48 years, not quite 50. And they raised eight children. Um, no one talked about their being like that, but they were like that. Their dignity was acknowledged at all times. The validity of their relationship and the relationships of others within our community was never ever questioned. However, for my uncles, it was a different story. And many of them ended up losing jobs, losing families, losing mana. And I felt that was wrong. I felt that was wrong. And so there was a parallel universe and Pākehā tourists would come to Rotorua and there were very internationally acclaimed beats around the lakefront and through the government gardens and around Quido Park, which are still actually quite active. And um, that was part of the culture that I grew up in. Coming here to Auckland and seeing what was going on was absolutely thrilling. And um, although there were all those different parts of me, they were never discordant. And they're not now. I take all that I am and I celebrate it. I do. There are parts, of course, that are constantly at war with each other. But only, of course, not constantly, but when the occasion comes up and I have to stop and I have to question. Um, I wanted to comment on um, one of Fiona's references and it was about the different clubs here in Auckland and also at that time as well of the emergence before gay liberation of a very active, secretive, passionate and committed community of older gay people, professional gay people, in the closet, but working for law reform. In 1967, the mother country, <laughs> the English Parliament, actually passed their very first criminal repeal and of course, homosexuality for consenting males over 21 was no longer criminal. That happened in 1967. We attempted to get it rolling here, and of course it didn't happen until almost 20 years later. 
But as a result of the um, British legislation, a number of quite prominent um, male figures here in Auckland and Wellington, including politicians, both local and national, started their campaign. In a way, with gay liberation, we were the crazy face. We were the risk takers. We were the ones putting the word out there. But I acknowledge and honour the teachers, the lawyers, the reverends, the doctors, the accountants, the dentists who made it happen. However, if you note that litany of occupations, I didn't mention the others. And by the others, I mean that in the 60s, Aotearoa New Zealand, and particularly Auckland, had a specifically conscious, exclusionary, and peculiar class structure. And very few people talk about that. Māori were trade. Māori were fun. Māori were some ones that you could take out on your arm. But Māori, particularly in the gay community, were not that welcome. Which is why um, the KG Club for Māori Women was particularly important. And it began with four Pākehā and four Māori, not couples, who rented this mad little upstairs room next to the Jewish cemetery in Karangahape Road. So it was Karangahape Road, KG, Girls Club, and um, was primarily a place in which we could play pool, check each other out, uh, keep an eye on each other's femmes, and... Um, make trouble. However, certain people were banned, and I was one of them, because I might bring up the press. And who wanted to be exposed? Who wanted to flaunt it? And gay liberation was about flaunting it. As I mentioned in my community, they were all around me, but they never flaunted it. That was unthinkable. That was a risk. But as GLF, we were happy, weren't we, Fiona, to take that risk, and we did. Yeah, I mean, I think it, if you could unpack particularly that point around kind of the importance of parties and the importance of pride and safe spaces, but you're also alluding to their, you know, the press and therefore having a presence in a more public space, which obviously documentation was a really important part of. So how did you reconcile those two things, you know, having those spaces where you could almost celebrate being yourself and then also transcending that into a more public space? I guess that really all whistles down to kind of the importance of pride and what pride means to you in claiming space. Just another really small question. <laughs> I, I, 
Well, most of us have gone, of our generation, most of us are dead and we died young. And I'm not just talking about HIV AIDS. We were risk takers. We were reckless. Gay abandon is not a cliche. We lived it. And part of the reason that so many of us have gone is because we lived life to the full as if there would never be a tomorrow. And yet at the same time, in the risks that we took, we thought about our mokopuna. We thought about you. We thought about those that would come decades later. Fiona and I are both really lucky to be here now because we survived. But people like the glorious Nigel and Rodney and Pat and Katerina and Sharon Alston, they didn't. And um, I'll give you the... Yeah, well, Fiona, you were before talking about, um, before we oh. came on stage, those whose work we haven't seen who are doing similar yes. things I to mean, what you were. Yeah, it was, um, it was risky. I mean, I... Um, and it's really just recently that people actually wanted to see my work. So, I mean, I hived off to live in Taranaki and my parents were there, so it seemed safe. And Tersha, uh, my gay friend, well, he, we just bought this place and headed out. It seemed safe and that was what we had to do to survive in a way because that's what the environment felt like. And so I set about to create what I call my own economy of existence because I knew that that work or those images, and I was going to continue to take photographs of people. You know, it wasn't going to stop. It's an addiction, you know. And it's the only thing I do. I don't have... I don't really do relationships very well. And so... I, you know, that was the way I felt I had to survive. Um, but many people just didn't or couldn't. And there were beatings. I mean, let's face it, we do know people who died, died in police custody, died from being beaten, died from an overdose and being left because people didn't realise or just thought that, you know, they were sleeping. Well, they seemed to be sleeping a lot. And so people did take huge risk. And the other thing is, you felt some days you just didn't have anything to lose. There was nothing else to lose. You'd lost your dignity. <laughs> you had your integrity, and that was basically it. So that early um, sense of being was incredibly important. And that's why I think pride is now extremely important because this is what the legacy we have. And I've been doing, you know, do a bit of a punt here, but there's a film about me called Unafraid. And every time people ask me to the screenings and go, I go because those images are very important to me and they hold that history and I know it, but also most 60% of the people in those images are dead, are gone. 
and none of, and I'm not even, you know, I'm getting up to 70, but most of them have died before they were 70. So it's extraordinary. I mean, I photographed Carmen on her 70th birthday. I did her portrait. So it was like, oh my God, this is a moment. She has lived this long. Normally that, you know, that, um, um, it, that's not a statistic that we talk about, but it, yeah, that just feels a bit down, but um, yeah, it's a bit of a price, I suppose, that some of the community have paid. I mean, I miss those friends. I really do. I miss knowing that Peter Wells has got another book coming out. I miss the crazy letters from Pat that she's been in Europe doing some other adventure and been to some new club. I mean, you know, I miss that connection but to that world that I know. There's very few people in those photographs that I've taken that are, are still alive. We had lots of fun. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was one ongoing mad party. We took lots of drugs. <laughs> that was part of the risk and the recklessness and the gay abandon. It wasn't all doom and gloom, no. not even remotely. And it was the fun and the creativity and the intersections and the crashes and the emotional wreckage and the betrayals and the drama <laughs> that continues today. Yeah. I, I, my photographs are about that, actually. Like, the photographs I take, I do not, I'm not going to do it when Carl is, you know, getting sick and lying in the gutter. I never photograph people in a bed. You know, there'd be just this glorious outrage of, of beauty or Pat sitting in her flat with all her lovely things around her from her last travels or whatever. So part of my project, my way of, of, of portraying our community is this huge outpouring of Nothing left to lose when Pat Bartlett's taken you on and you won. I mean, yeah, so that, on that, yeah, taking it back on to another level. <laughs> and, I mean, I always find it really interesting as well when we talk about trying to claim that space, and this is from whatever version of intersectionality of identities, is that so frequently now the conversation seems to be about how can we wedge more of certain characteristic into this space as opposed to how do we design this space with this characteristic or these people or all people in mind. To that effect, when you're talking about kind of the advocacy that was bubbling up in the cauldron of all of these different Copacabra issues 50 odd years ago that continue to this day, how, what was it that you were hoping would happen what was your ask? You've, you've drilled down into some of the really specific things, like decriminalisation of homosexuality. We were talking before about, you know, for some of our community, the likes of marriage is really important. We've got so many different things that are still continuing to be issues legally and politically to this day. What was it at a base level that you were asking for when these movements were started? Social justice. Social justice. That's what drove me. Um, growing up in um, the environment 
I did. Um, it, it, yeah, I, I couldn't get away from it. Um, and that still drives me now. And it's like, when you really believe that something is wrong, whether it's some old bitch headmistress <laughs> calling you out, you know, when you're 12 years old in a um, single-sex girls' public high school and you're the only Māori kid in the um, top academic third form and you're called a black abomination. I mean, it's stuff like that which really tunes you in. Or having an uncle that's revered as a speaker on the Pai Pai, welcoming the Queen one minute, off to jail the next. You know, these are the kinds of experiences um, that really, really fire your soul and um, make you want to take responsibility, make you want to make a difference. And that fire will never go out. You know, I, um, I know that we're living in a completely different time, but um, so many of the crises are still there. It's like referring earlier to the 1967 decriminalising of um, homosexuality between men over 21 in Britain, at the same time, Aboriginal people in Australia, the tangata whenua of that land, were being enacted in the British Parliament and the Australian Parliament as no longer fauna and flora, but as human beings, as people. So that kind of tells you a lot about the social environment in which we, or which we came through and which shaped us and which certainly um, motivated so many of us. And I think of Moana, whom we lost recently, Moana Jackson, and of course Joe, may they rest in peace, but also other fighters, other activists, and how we came through that time and we were determined to make a difference. You know, I think of Amarohihi, who was a Cossack dyke and a heterosexual panther. <laughs> and a significant personality here in Auckland for many, many decades. And the fire that drove her, and we lost her last year. So yeah, there, um, there are a lot of stories and um, a lot of reasons why we do what we do. And I don't say we did what we did, because we're still doing it. I mean, for you, was there any one particular issue, Fiona, that drew you into this? I mean, you seem to be really fascinated by uh, what you were calling the, the inequities, the, um, yeah, it, what was happening in Auckland at the time. But was there any one thing in particular, or did it just feel like the right thing? It just felt like the right thing, and I was there. It, it wasn't just that I took a few photos. That these photos were my family, and I wanted to make an album up, and I would record it. 
and these were my friends. And, you know, to know that when I lived in St Stephen's Ave and that we'd all gone out and Carl hadn't turned up. Like, where was Carl? He'd gone somewhere else. Well, he crawled home from the duck, what was called the duck pond in those days, back to our flat in Parnell in the morning. And issue, you know, when that happens to you, that you're, it's actually quite, it's, you know, it, it wasn't sad. It was just like, oh, my God, this is just terrible. So, and I, um, it, I mean, look, it's, it's the social, it's social injustice and those really um, times of people just rejecting, just saying you are not worthy, you are vile, you are, um, you know, an abomination, you... And also, women at the time were getting shock treatment. So I had two friends who've since died who'd had um, shock treatment, whose families had called and a psych two psychiatrists had committed them for their lesbianism. And they, you know, institutionalised. There were those sorts of issues that you knew you were, you know, sometimes you went pretty close to the edge. Um, but... That's what drove me to make, to record those, to make images and be an artist who sort of could actually tell that story. So, you know, Carl lying down in a, in a blaze of glory, just occupying a whole space at the Gaylib party, as he did on stage. But you knew that Carl's life had been quite tragic. And the same with the women from the KG Club. I mean, Bub just died recently and she'd end up living in uh, Waitara. And um, that was really sad. So they're up here, yeah. But, you know, I'm, I'm raving on a bit, but it's that, it's that deep sense of social injustice and politics that has always driven me. It's the politics of the inequities and being told I was going, you know, if I went to Elam, it was a den of iniquity. Well, my mother just said, well, that's out, you know, I'm going. Sounds interesting. But it was those political moments, and I, I never shy from the politics either. I'll take it on, and I, I love it. It's, it drives me. I live in Waitara. I mean, Waitara has a huge story of, you know, of um, confiscation, of colonialism. Um, there's two, still two sides of the river, the river and one side. One side of the river is called one thing and the other side is called the other, which I won't repeat because I refuse to say those things these days. But that's where I live. And I choose to live in that community because those politics are so, so strong and so, so good to... It keeps me, me active. Mm. It keeps my brain. And I continue to document... Um, things around me in my community. Mm. I've just done a little show about women in their tees, which um, women in their t-shirts, their activist t-shirts, a set of portraits of women. Um, it, COVID interrupted a bit, but women wearing the t-shirts of their activism. Um, and they all identify as women-loving women. So that's a nice little set from 50 to celebrate 50 years. And the best... and. Nahuya sent some T-shirts, and the best one was, we recruit. Yeah. <laughs>
we remember too. <laughs> I feel like saying, where's the T-shirt that says we remember? We recruit. But we recruit was, um, you might, like, oh, it was It's one. the um, Lesbian Avengers um, based in San Francisco. And, um, and they had we recruit on one side and on the other, um, be the bomb you are. <laughs> which was this, with this little bomb, a little old-fashioned round bomb. But um, that, I think, is something I do want to say. In the last 50 years, um, we've had this extraordinary efflorescence of creative, brave, outstanding, passionate art makers. And Fiona was right there at the beginning of that. And um, in music, in sculpture, in drama, in so many different genres. Um, way back then, it was like, gosh, we had happenings, but they were very timid. They were very timid, weren't they? They were quite strange. And um, sometimes Jack Body and Noel Sanders would break out, but not very far. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it... I think if there is anything I would celebrate, it has been um, the absolute brilliance and um, outrage of Māori and Pacifica gay personalities and activists, and also, of course, the creatives. Because I, I just think it's, you know, it's unstoppable now. The buggers cannot deny <laughs> that we exist because we do. And with work like Fiona's, we are in their faces all the time. And that's great. Uh, so we'll just have two more questions for these two, and then we'll um, go to questions from the floor. So if anybody has anything that they'd like to ask, just percolate on that. Um, but just reflecting on those 50 years and where things were at, you know, 50-odd years ago when you were in the quad and you were having these fights uh, and people were being arrested and everything was going on. Um, you've spoken to how, you know, just intense that was in Fiona, how it was almost just a sense of integrity and nothing to lose that meant people turned up and fought every single day. I know speaking to particularly a range of younger activists in a multiplicity of spaces that one of the hardest things to find on a day-to-day -day basis right now is a sense of hope because everything feels so overwhelming and intense and difficult and as other um, kind of matriarchs and many different co-papa like Marilyn Waring have put it, it's exhausting to get up every day and to fight. So where did you find that sense of resolve to do that? I mean, do you ascribe to what some people say, rest is resistance? <laughs> was, was partying part of it and that release valve for you? How did you find that strength to get up and to continue going at it every single day or every single week? Shall I go first? Um, choose your battles. Mm. Choose your battles. You can't fight every single one. Choose your battles and choose your comrades in arms. Um, and also, yeah, rest is um, a way of resistance as well. Um, and never lose hope. You know, I look at you all now and think, my God, this is amazing. Just never lose hope, never lose sight of the joy in what we do, 
Never. Never give up. Um, as um, the koro, as he nare te ua says, never lose vigilance either. Yeah, so that's, yeah, that's what keeps me at it. Um, and on a more personal level, um, particular people, and most importantly, particular animals. So, yeah, Fiona. Yeah, I mean, I, the other thing is you've got to realise, I mean, you can count the people around the statue with Ngahuia standing with her hand in the air, and we can name them. So there were how many, like eight or 12? Nine of us. Nine of us, yeah. And going to those parties underneath in the student union, you know, the photos look sparse. Well, it was. So you don't have to have the numbers necessarily at all, but it is like Rahuya says, choose your battles, but also, you know, the support for one another is huge. And it also, you know, when I, when I think about that time sometimes, I just have to remember people like Pat or some instance that's happened and you have that sense of creating your own history and your own knowledge. And that, for me, is incredibly important, that you know that you're not alone. You're never alone when you're queer, in a way. You know that there is others, and they are in the same town. Yeah, they are <laughs> right there. You might see them in the supermarket. <laughs> When you, you know, and I mean, Waitara is very, um, it's a great town for spotting people in the supermarket. But anyway, and uh, the kohanga for the women. Um, but, <laughs> but in the sense of feeling that sense that there's always hope, you know, I don't. And <laughs> like, although there were nine of us around the monument, it was Albert Park and there were the lurkers. <laughs> There were always people standing around on the margins. And some bloke in the trench coat might pull out of his pocket a pink scarf. And that would be a signal. Yes. But not actually come up to the monument. Oh. Or some butch girl would kind of slow down a bit and give you the look and then walk very quickly. But never actually join the madness around the monument, so that although there were nine of us highly visible and showing off, because that's what we were accused of, showing off, there were dozens out there that joined us in their own way and their own time. Yeah. Uh, just final question, so again, percolate on your questions, because I'll be coming to you in a sec. Uh, but I find it really fascinating that the both of you have returned, and I apologise for those for whom Rotorua doesn't count as the regions, but both of you um, have left Tāmaki Makaurau, Auckland, um, and it is really fascinating to hear your reflections on what the city was like uh, back then at the kind of the hotbed of this activism. Um, taking the kaupapa that you have and the things that you've been fighting for back into those more regional spaces is also really interesting to reflect on because, again, so many people tend to project onto those regional spaces that they might have more conservative views of the world. 
So I wonder if, you know, for both sides of that coin, if you could reflect on whether that is indeed a reality uh, and what it is that drove you into those communities. And then secondly, what it's like now revisiting um, Tāmaki Makaurau Auckland, and particularly this campus. 50 years on, do you feel that same sense of hope that things are pushing forward? Um, so yeah, kind of reflections on the regions and where you are now and the city and where that's at now. I mean, where I mean, I you still get bigotry, you still get people yelling at you. You're disgusting. I had it uh, about uh, three months ago, and I just stood there and smiled and thought, I am disgusting. Yes, <laughs> I haven't cleaned my teeth this morning <laughs> properly. That is. Um, so you do get that, but you get. I mean. <laughs> That just reflects the way we are. We haven't quite turned around completely. I just always think that's what the rest of the world are, are some of us, or sort of in Aotearoa are. Some of us haven't quite turned completely yet. Um, and and that's all that it is. But in a, yeah, that's, yeah, just reflects who's out there. You, came, you, you still decided to move into the regions knowing that that was a, I wouldn't say more yeah. mainstream view, but that perhaps there was greater acceptance in Auckland City it, Centre. Yeah, I think that I was very lucky that I met, uh, that another, I mean, lo, I got involved in the local politics with the, a Waitangi tribunal claim and people just, you know, saw me as this really good, for, efficient photographer who did what they were told. <laughs> And so I produced a huge body of, another body of work around local issues mm -hmm. and about the Waitara River, the Y6 claim took three years, I got involved in that. People did not care anything about what else I did, who I lived with at all. They, the politics of that was what I had come out of in Auckland and it just fitted. And I just stayed, really. And I, yeah, don't... Um, what, do you, what do you think of the city now? Just reflecting on all those spaces I love that you took. Yeah, I it's a great city. Yeah. We love it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but reflecting yeah. on, the, you know, uh, you talk about particularly Karangahape Road and how these venues, which were so important um, at this, this point of this fight and this activist history, uh, a lot of them don't exist anymore. Um, you think about this campus and how it's literally out there right now, physically changing. I mean, do you ascribe much meaning to? Do you, do you oh, yeah. feel a sense of place here? Yeah, I, because it's, yeah, I love it. I can walk along K Road and snigger where the Dolls Hospital used to be, which was once the KG Club venue. I mean, I just always, yeah, I mean, that's my memory of Auckland as well. Yeah, my memory of Auckland is good. I love it. I love coming to the city. Yeah, I don't... Um, positive. Oh. My memory of Auckland... I think that's another whole panel. <laughs> no, I do. Um, this campus, it's metamorphosis. This street... Uh, where the Waipapa Marae is, they used to have the um, boat sheds for the rowers. Where we are sitting were the language laboratories. Up on the corner was this wonderful 
extremely genteel uh, coffee bar run by the former mistress of a member of parliament. A very genteel and extraordinary place that was originally one of the first villas on Grafton Road. Where I lived in 1967 was a tiny house down in the gully at a time when people would go poozling in the graveyard and bring back glass jars and pieces of jewellery and all the Māori in the vicinity would immediately take off and start throwing water everywhere. <laughs> and um, those were the intersections of that time when Grafton Gully was a student community of incredible vitality and lush beauty and um, 1840s, 1830s, 1850s colonial shacks and cottages and houses. It was somewhere completely different. And when I drive in from SH1 now, it, it really hurts sometimes. It does. So I love Auckland. Um, what else can I say? Um, living in Rotorua, I have another life. Um, even though I am the real karanga, principal female chanter, ritual practitioner on the marae of Ohinamutu Te Papaiuru, and I wear long black, actually I wear a, um, a burqa, I bought it in Turkey, and it is fantastic. I wear um, Middle Eastern women's garb, which is incredibly unisex. And um, I live and perform and engage as a queer in her mid-70s. It's what I do, but I will never, ever let that be the only me that the world sees at home. So that much of the time, I'm talking with families um, who are worried about a child that may be like that. Um, I'm hanging out with parents who are rather concerned that their daughter is bringing a girl home and they go into the bedroom. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm out there, but Rotorua is not safe. It's not. Tipuke is not safe. Whakatane isn't. Tauranga might be because it's becoming more cosmopolitan and um, closer to Hamiltron and, of course, here, Auckland. I think that in many ways the Takatapui vibe and the intensity of our liberation, of our living free, of our being ourselves, is very much a metropolitan and city um, situation. It's not safe in the regions. Would you agree with that? Mm. You would. You get yelled at. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, people didn't, people sort of 
um, asked me what my film was about. Oh, I thought yeah. that was really interesting. They said, so you've got a film, what is it about? And I said, actually it's about me. And they said, why? And oh, I well, said, well, maybe you should have a look. <laughs> so people, uh, yeah, it's like I, I kept thinking, do I, you know, I should stop wearing my cardigans maybe. But I've always, I've always been proud of wearing cardigans. Cardigans, <laughs> you know, it's a thing. Um, yes, regions aren't still... Yeah, there are some um, unsafe parts of it that you've... But the thing is, you, you, your intuition became so attuned in that 70s period that you knew. Oh, yeah. You did know. And I'm sure that people do know that still. When you're, when you're queer, your intuition just link. You just know. You know. You know. And I'm, yeah, I, I'm quite often, I'm aware of that when I'm quite public at home. Mm. Uh, you know, it's like talking about Penny Wong. Mm. And um, people say, who? Or you? Mm. And they go, what? <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, the world is an exciting place to be, though. Mm. And I think the regions aren't that bad, mm. although I do love Auckland. If I weren't um, the Māori I am, mm. I would probably live here. We'll take that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Kia ora. Um, do we, how do we want to do questions? Kia ora, kaoroa. Um, ko Luca Bria Ho. So many shared memories. I heard you um, first speak Nahuia in 1972 oh when God. I was beginning a similar journey. Um, so five decades of passion and rage and joy and friendship and um, <laughs> hard, bloody hard mahi and, um, and triumphs and despair. Um, my own destination on, as an evolving organism um, meant that I um, acknowledged joyfully my, myself as a man. And then something strange happened. I was being told that I must, by former friends and collaborators, that I must be defined by my genitalia um, that, and just as I had been told in the 70s to be a good wife and stop this nonsense, um, I was now being told to be a good lesbian and not rock the boat. And I, I just wondered about your thoughts of that. But, but um, namihi nui for wonderful memories shared. Thank you. Kia ora. Kei te mihi hau ki a koe, mō tō kaha. Um, your strength inspires me. Thank you. Just being who you are is, is just what, you know, that, that's, the, that's the strength. And I don't think... Um, in the 70s, um, I had a friend, and we would secretly talk about the lesbian police. Oh. <laughs> So, which was, you know, within this room is fine. <laughs> um, but, you know, there were, it felt sometimes like there were rules. 
So it was quite difficult for, I mean, I was seen as a femme, and that was difficult sometimes. Cause you I, wore lipstick. You know, yeah, I wore lipstick, so I was femme. And I had no other role. You know, it was uh, those, those roles, and for me, um, yeah, when uh, that, that uh, part is actually, was actually quite difficult for me to think, still think. I'm really happy that I call myself queer. And it's about the third in the line of how I define myself now. I call myself a queer, queer. <laughs> no, I do. You can. And um, it's really funny because um, my cousins on the Pai Pai and other people in other communities kind of look at me and they go, Kui Kui. And I go, no, Q-U-E-E-R and then K-U-I-A. And they go, woo. <laughs> Yeah, but um, just talking about the butch femme thing and the police, um, I really do recognise the courage and the glamour and the brilliance of some of the early lesbian activists, so, like Rosemary Ronald, who never gave up high heels. Never. And um, was one of the founders of Broadsheet. And it's very much a high femme. And I think that in the um, queer world, in the, in the camp girls' world, I mean, there was something about having a trophy high femme. There really was. Um, even though I had long, long hair because my uh, grandmother wouldn't let me cut it, um, I wasn't femme. No. No. And it's, I suppose... Part of the conversation that you're all having about identity mm. and um, definition and um, which, which face you put out there at a particular time on a particular day. And that face can change. And it should be allowed to. And I think that's the struggle. That there are people saying, nope, that's not cool. And we're living at a time of social media when the police are still out there. They're just taking a different form. Yeah, I really resonated uh, with this line in an uh, essay that you wrote, Fiona. Apology. I was on my phone Googling exactly this. <laughs> uh, where you say, recently somebody asked me how I define myself and I said, well, I'm just me these days. I used to have a saying on my wall, once I was a tomboy and now I'm a full-grown lesbian. One day I crossed out that last half and wrote, but now I'm queer. Even that label will probably change. Uh, did anyone um, else have any... Do we have, like, five minutes? Yeah, yeah cool. Five, five minutes. odd minutes. Hi, um, I'm Amalia. Um, I've just turned 18, so I'd just like to thank you for giving me a future and being able to be a queer person, um, especially in Aotearoa. Um, especially at the moment, watching how things are going down around the world. Um, how did you find a way to accept yourself and who you are? Because I know that people in the circles I run in, though they're in really accepting circles, may not feel like they can accept themselves because of how they've been raised. And obviously you grew up at a time when 
you, people weren't as loud about it. So how did you find that courage almost to accept yourself to yourself rather than just to others? Um, that's a brave question. Thank you. It's also a very challenging one. Um, on the on the podium now, you've got not just a couple of activists. You've got two creatives. What kept me going was my. Um, was my passion with words. And um, I've never stopped writing. Even though um, I got diverted by scholarship and academic production. Because I had this, I was going to say queer, um, talent which finds writing non-fiction, writing scholarship really easy. Whereas doing fiction, um, making original work, being creative as a writer, I find extremely hard. <laughs> but I can do non-fiction, no sweat. And, um, and I write, I write, I write constantly. I've never stopped, ever. And, um, and that's what got me through, even though much of the time I was writing to myself and just working through the shit um, to myself. And um, um, I know a lot of other um, activists and pioneering thinkers who have done the same thing. They've actually danced it out or they've played it out through music or they've photographed it, but they've worked in a creative way and I think that is very much part of the queer dynamic. And that's part of our process. You know, um, we could all end up having therapy and um, on ACC or so somehow or else sitting with someone for an hour a week, kind of unburdening us all and spreading shit everywhere. But actually... Um, Finding a creative way in which you can release that, explore it, and um, come to terms with it and find yourself. And you may find a different you every time you put pen to paper or paint to surface. It's there. All those people that make you who you are are there waiting for you. And what you do is cherish them. Never be afraid of them. Kia ora, that was a good question. Kia ora. Um, I garden a lot. Oh. <laughs> I also embroider. I embroider people. I have old cloths that I re-embroider and they're usually saying someone has said to me or something that's occupied my mind. So I might have something on the go. And it's a traditional, it's almost like an re-exorcising you know, my grandmother's passion for stitching or knitting or whatever my great-aunt did. Um, 
So that's one way that it's that creative thing that you do, and you, it's very, it's quite often, you know, very private. Although my garden is just great. I love my garden. I just grow. After. Well, the other thing was when you may, may not have a large income or support from people, you have to provide yourself with food. So one way of doing it is actually just growing it. So that's one thing that I have done, is like I've said about creating my own economy to, make, to be myself to who I want to do, what I want to do. So that's the way I have worked. And that's something that I think people are more thinking about, creating a way of survival and being, you know, true to yourself. And it is really important to have those um, ways of being, yeah, creative. And a creative can be anything, I mean, yeah. Um, thank you all so much uh, for being here, for participating, for contributing, uh, for being part of our community. Um, thank you both for being incredible and for trailblazing and enabling us the space to be here today uh, on this very campus, I might add. Um, and thank you so much to Auckland Pride for making this all happen. And thank you, Chloe, for being a brilliant facilitator and asking good questions. <laughs> yes. Thank you.